We're starting a new series today. Woohoo! We're done with 2 Corinthians, which felt like a marathon, right? That was a long time. And this is probably going to be another marathon, except we're going to break it up a little bit with the Christmas story. But this series is called Great Expectations. It's about the Old Testament. We're going to talk about the Bible today. Some of you are Bible veterans and scholars and geniuses. Others, our Bible looks like this, where it's sitting on the shelf, dusty, sad, lonely. And nowadays, it's more often you're probably on your phone than you're actually reading an actual book. But I'm going to speak for myself when I talk about how I viewed the Bible or how it was when I first started reading it. I know when I was in school, I had to read the entire Bible, which was a challenge. And uh, audio helps. <laughs> but it was an interesting thing because I know when I was a kid, I viewed the Old Testament and the New Testament as two separate stories. I looked at it as this is the old, stinky, dusty, foggy story, and this is the new, exciting Jesus story. The Old Testament was full of fire and brimstone and God smiting everybody, right? There's sacrifices and burnt offerings and bondage and slavery and exile and just, oh, it felt heavy. And I'd read it and go, man, this is terrible. Good thing we got this new version with Jesus. This version makes it all right. New Testament, we have Jesus' love and compassion and come to me all who are weary and I will give you rest. In the Old Testament we have, if you go into this tabernacle unclean, they're gonna drag you out. <laughs> so, I don't know, whenever I would read the Bible before, I would look at it like, you know, I read the New Testament, Jesus is beckoning me, Jesus is calling me to this wonderful experience, kind of like this picture. We don't do, you know, <laughs> pop culture pastor, right? Where Jesus is saying, come to me, all who are weary, I will give you rest. Come on. This is easy. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. Jesus is welcoming. Jesus is easy. He's, he's loving and kind, compassionate. And then you read the Old Testament, it's like God's looking at you like this. <laughs> you better not do that. If you break this rule, if you break this law, whew, I will strike down upon thee with great vengeance and furious anger. Anybody else feel that way? Like, I don't know, maybe you're enlightened now. I feel like I'm somewhat enlightened, but did you ever read the Old Testament and go, man, this is tough? Like, how could anybody ever measure up to this standard of God's? You read about, you know, Abraham's gonna sacrifice Isaac, you know, and you go, oh, man, there's all these harsh things are being done. All these harsh requests, leave your land and your family, go to this place that I will show you. It's so much trust, so much uncertainty, so much disappointment. It seems like every time the Israelites would get their act together, they would mess up and do something else and they'd lose whatever grace or whatever progress they had had or they had made so far. So, when I look at the Bible now, I look at it a little differently. There's a phrase, there's a saying, you might have heard it before, trust the process. Have you heard that before? Trust the process. It's kind of been hijacked by the uh, Philadelphia 76ers, but I don't know if you've ever worked in children's ministry, but there's this curriculum where they talk about the big God story. Have you heard that before? 
the big God story, and it's this thing that they walk you through. They did it at Rock Harbor, where they take the kids from Adam all the way through to the New Testament, and they show and they discuss how things are all connected and linked. And I thought, how come we don't look at the Bible that way? How come the kids are getting all the good stuff, right? Because when I was a kid, it was don't do this or else. And I grew up in a fire and brimstone church, so it was a little different for me. It was very legalistic, but I never thought of it as one big story. So when I look at it now, I say, okay, this is one book, two parts, one book. Season one, season two. Like, this is us. Talked about this is us way back at Easter, right? But you watch this is us, and there are hints and clues and things dropped in the first season that pay off or that are revealed or we understand in the second season, right? You watch it and you say, oh, man, you mean this guy's dead? Spoiler alert, yes, he is. And then the question is, how does he die? And then in season two, you're like, oh, that's how he dies, right? There's these mysteries or these ideas or these questions that are presented in the first season that are answered or revealed in the second season. You guys with me so far? Yeah. Okay. There's a lot of foreshadowing in This Is Us. There's a lot of foreshadowing or, or clues or ideas in the Old Testament that pay off later. And that's why I say trust the process because when it comes to the process, when you're watching one of these shows, whatever your show of the moment is, you're believing that they're gonna reveal the answers later. You're believing that it's all gonna make sense later. You trust Joss Whedon or whoever's writing the show. You trust that they're gonna come through later and give you the answer and you're gonna understand what's happening, right? It's a literature device. They give you something to think about and then you look for the clues and you try to find exactly what the author was thinking when he wrote it, and then later on in the next book or the next season, you go, oh, that's what he was thinking. And you can go back and say, I remember when he first said this, now this makes sense. You guys with me so far, kind of where I'm going with this? So trust the process is like trusting that whomever is authoring the story, whoever is writing the show, whoever wrote the movie, the screenplay, the comic book, has some kind of a plan and some kind of a payoff at the end of the story, and it's all going to make sense. And so when you look at the Bible, when I look at the Bible, I say, okay, the Old Testament presents a lot of questions, throws a lot of clues, throws a lot of ideas, a lot of I don't know, prepositions that are someday going to be paid off. And so what I wanted to do in creating this series, Great Expectations, I wanted to look at all of the different ways that the Old Testament points to Jesus. Because as we're getting closer and closer to the holidays, which Shane just said, October is pretty much over. We're going to be handing out candy in a couple of days. Then we're going to be eating turkey. Then we're going to be unwrapping presents. And if you go to Target, they want you to do all that right now. You're going to be handing out candy while you eat turkey or handing out Christmas presents in your Halloween costume while you eat turkey. It's insane. You can't walk through the aisle without seeing three different holidays without your breath. I want to go step by step, story by story, through the big God story. I want us to look and try to find the clues and see the ideas and the questions that are asked and presented, and then, we can continue into the New Testament and see how Jesus answers these questions. It's not that the New Testament is different than the Old Testament. Jesus himself said, I came not to abolish the old laws, but to fulfill the old laws. 
And if you don't know the old laws, if you don't know the old stories, if you don't know the old questions, how can you really recognize Jesus? If you start watching a show in the fourth season, you ever do that? You've been watching something for a minute, and it's good, and your friend's like, hey, what you watching? And you're like, uh, Dexter, or, you know, whatever. And they sit down, like, okay, wait, who's that? Why is he doing that? Why does he go here? Wait, that's her brother? And you're just looking at him like, you got to start at the beginning. If you want to understand this, you have to go to the beginning. So we're going to start at the beginning. We're going to talk about creation and Noah and Abraham and Moses and David and all the prophets all the way to Jesus. So right now we're going to start in the very beginning in the creation story. Creation is a very popular topic. I think probably in a couple months, everybody in January 1st is going to break out their Bibles and start reading Genesis 1, right? <laughs> in the beginning, they might get to Genesis 17 and they fall off, right? But they all said, Genesis 1. I think everybody knows the creation story, so I don't want to reiterate the creation story for you. I don't want to go through in the beginning, right? And there are a lot of, well, hold on, we're going to cover it. <laughs> no, 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 there's, there's, and I know there are people in this room that have different views on the creation story than I do. So we could really talk about it if you want to. We could, some people believe that it's a literal seven day creation. Some people believe it wasn't a literal seven days. Some people believe that God can work through evolution and science like I do, and some people think that evolution is a big pile of poop, right? But, malarkey, I don't know, my wife just cringed when I said poop. That's never good. Um, I don't know. We'll find out. Can we say it on the podcast? And we're like, oh, what kind of church? All right. So let's start with the story of creation. I'm not going to tell it, but there's a video that we're going to use throughout this series to kind of present different ideas. If you're not familiar, it's called The Bible Project. Anybody seen these videos? They're really good. And if you ever go on YouTube, type in The Bible Project, there's a ton of really good information there. This video is about the Messiah, and it talks a little bit about creation and presents some of the questions that we're going to answer today. So without further ado, there's this crazy story in the beginning of the Bible. We have Adam and Eve, and they're in the Garden of Eden. And everything in this garden is great. It's exactly as it should be. Except that there's this one tree that they're told by God not to eat from because it's dangerous and it will kill them. So that's it. Avoid this fruit tree and we're fine. Right. It seems pretty simple. But in this garden, there's a snake. And it starts telling a different story. It says that if you do this tree, it's not going to kill you. In fact, it's going to make you become like God. And Adam and Eve, they believe the snake, and they eat the fruit. And because of this, the goodness of the garden is tragically lost, and evil and death enters into God's good world. Now, why is there a talking snake in the garden? I mean, this thing is a problem. Yeah, it's very strange. And even more strange is the fact that the Bible doesn't say why or how this thing even got there. It just presents the snake as this creature who's in rebellion against God and that wants to get other people to doubt God's goodness and lead them on a path towards death. And so whatever this snake is, it's the source of evil that pervades our world and our lives, even still today. But there is some hope, because right here in the story, God makes this really interesting promise to happen. That someone is going to come in the future, a son of Eve. And this guy's going to come and he's going to crush the serpent and destroy evil at its source. However, during this battle, the serpent is going to fight this guy's heel. So it's like a mutual destruction. Yeah, this is very strange but beautiful. 
promise. And it's just like hanging there until the next key moment in the story. All right. Pretty cool, right? Super gigantic snake. Yeah. Kind of scary. Without legs. Without legs, yes, Shane. So. <laughs> should. So the creation story, we all should know it. If not, we can talk about it after church. We can read Genesis 1 and 2 together. But uh, I want to highlight a couple of things. Genesis 2, verses 1 and 2 says, So the creation of the heavens and the earth and everything in them was completed. And on the seventh day, God had finished his work of creation, so he rested from all his work. Seven days, they say it took to create the earth. On the seventh day, God rested. He was finished. And then God creates man and then woman. And as you saw in the video, he gives them run of the garden. Just don't eat this tree. Genesis 1:28. then God blessed them and he said, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and govern it. Reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and all the animals that scurry along the ground. So God creates man. He gives him a beautiful, wonderful place to live with everything he'll ever need. And he gives him a job. He gives him an identity. He says, this is what I want you to do. This is who you are and what I want you to be. And all I want you to do is follow this one rule. Don't do this one thing. Genesis 2, 15 through 18, he says, The Lord God placed the man in the Garden of Eden to tend and watch over it. But the Lord God warned him, You may freely eat of the fruit of every tree in the garden, except the tree of knowledge of good and evil. If you eat this fruit, you are sure to die. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper who is just right for him. And that was Eve. Now, here's the thing. If you know the story of the fall, which we just covered in the video, Eve talks to the snake. He convinces her the fruit's good. She eats it. Then she convinces Adam to eat the fruit. Then, of course, they get caught. And what does Adam do, guys? It was the woman you gave me. It was her. This blessing, this wonderful thing. When, when God presents Eve to Adam, he says, this is at last, flesh of my flesh, bone of my bone. This is all my dreams come true. And then when they mess up, he goes, she did it, right? Her, it was this woman you gave me. I know I was excited a couple of days ago, but now, mm -mm, no, she's all bad. But then this happens. God punishes them, he curses them. He curses the serpent, which Shane alludes to, where he says, now you're gonna crawl around in your belly. He curses the woman and says, you'll have increased pain in childbirth. They curse the man and says, hey, you're going to have to toil the earth, and the earth is not going to be easy. You're going to have to work hard, harder. And then in Genesis 3.15, he says this to the snake, and I will cause hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head, and you will strike his heel. What does that mean? We just watched the video and they said it's like an epic battle, which I can kind of see that, but strike his head, strike his heel. Other translations, bruise his head, bruise his heel, crush is another translation. You'll crush his and he'll crush your head. There's a, a mutual destruction coming. But this is like those seeds that are planted in your favorite TV show, right? This is kind of like those uh, Russian dolls. What do they call them? Matryoshka? Yeah, where there's a doll, sorry. There's a doll inside of that. I've never been to Russia. There's a doll inside of the other doll inside of the other doll. You can look at this and see on surface value, like, okay, I guess girls ain't going to like snakes, right? They're not going to like snakes. They're going to be a problem. But if you look a little deeper inside the Matryoshka doll, 
All right. There's something else there. Now, if you are like me and you're curious and you read a bunch of commentaries and other stuff, it's pretty clear what the promise is there. Pretty clear what's coming, but I'm going to break it down for you. There's a specific promise that God makes. God's promise is, it's a guarantee, but it's not in the way that you would think it is. Let me explain what I mean. There is a, um, a book that I've been reading called The Emmaus Code. The Emmaus Code is a book by um, David Limbaugh. It's a great book. It's called Finding Jesus in the Old Testament. The Emmaus Code, Finding Jesus in the Old Testament is the subtitle. I've been reading this book a lot. And it's amazing. I totally recommend it. I'm going to quote some stuff from it tonight. So when I say God of your promise, which is a lyric from a song we're going to sing in a bit, God's promise is so different. See, a promise, there, there, there's the, the covenant. And we'll talk about covenants probably next week. But God made a, a, an agreement between man and between Abraham and with Noah and so on and so forth. So there's this covenant that we call the Edenic, Edenic covenant, the covenant of Eden. And it's a promise, but the promise is a little bit different because it's dependent on obedience. They actually call this the promise or the covenant of works. Most of the covenants are a covenant of faith. This is a covenant of works because Adam had a job to do in order to keep and maintain this covenant. His job was take care of this stinking garden, but don't eat that freaking fruit. But what did he do? He ate the fruit. I know, it's kind of funny, but I'll put it to you like this. God's promise to Adam and through him to all mankind is of life and blessing. When God tells Adam that he will surely die if he disobeys, he means that he will live if he obeys. The promise, the covenant, the agreement, the deal is if you do this, you can live for eternity. If you do this, you'll be in my good graces and you'll be part of my family, you'll be part of my eternal vision, part of my creation for eternity. But if you don't, you will surely die. If you don't hold up your end of the deal, if you don't match, meet the requirements of this covenant, you're out. So what happens? Adam breaks the covenant. Adam is out. Adam's failure demonstrates man's incapability of sustaining a proper relationship with God, even when situated in paradise. That to me was a, a powerful quote. Because some of us will say things like, man, if only it was like this, I wouldn't do that anymore. You ever made a deal with God? God, if you just fix this problem, I'll serve you forever. God, if you just take this away, if I could just move, if I could just make more money, if you just send me a girlfriend, if I could meet somebody special, I'll stop watching those things I'm not supposed to watch. If I could get a better job, I'll stop hustling and doing this thing on the side that I know is not what you want me to do. Whatever it is that you might struggle with or somebody you know might struggle with, people have made deals with God forever. But here's the weird part. Adam had everything going for him. He lived in paradise. So why couldn't he keep the agreement? Why couldn't he keep the covenant? He didn't have anything that he was missing. He wasn't lacking anything. And that goes back to the video where they say, why was the snake here? Why was the snake in the garden in the first place? And I believe that the snake was always there because the snake is in us. Because that temptation, that fear, that fear of missing out, that sense of inadequacy or that wanting to be like God, that wanting to be powerful, the serpent didn't promise that you're going to live forever. He said you will be like God. 
You'll have power. You'll have understanding. You'll have knowledge. The tree is called the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So what happened? They thought they were missing out and they wanted to be like God. That is ingrained in us. It's ingrained in us that we want to be as big, powerful, successful, whatever. And if there's anyone that's doing better than us, typically we go, how can we get like that? How can I get like this guy? How can I be like Mike? Whatever. So here's the thing. Whereas Adam, the first Adam, obeyed Satan and disobeyed God, the last Adam obeyed God and rejected Satan's temptation. Through his love for and obedience to God, the last Adam began to fulfill what the covenant from Genesis 2, 16 through 17 required of all of humanity. That's kind of wordy. Let me break it down for you again. The first Adam, Adam in the Garden of Eden, obeyed Satan and disobeyed God. The last Adam, which is another name for Jesus, obeyed God and rejected Satan's temptation. So where Adam in the garden came up short and couldn't hold up his end of the covenant agreement, Jesus, through his obedience and his perfection, was able to maintain and hold up his part of the agreement. Therefore, the promise of creation, God's creation, this, this vision of a restored world belongs to Jesus. Does that make sense? Y'all with me? Let me break it down a little bit. Because Jesus obeyed God, because he was able to live a sinless, perfect life, he fulfilled the original design that God had for man. Because he was able to do the thing that Adam wasn't able to do, he now reaps the rewards that were originally promised to Adam. Y'all with me? I'm going to keep asking you because this is kind of a, you know, I like to talk to you. But here's the thing. When you read the Old Testament, you go, yep, sure, uh-huh, no, got it, yep, mm-hmm, yep. What I'm asking you to do is stop and look for the clues. What I want to point out are these little things that maybe you didn't think about before where you can say, hold on a second, are those things really connected? There are so many parallels from the Garden of Eden to the Garden of Revelation. There's all these things. The Bible is oftentimes a mirror image of each other. We're going to explore that a little bit, but right now I want to look at the first Adam and the last Adam, and the first Adam messed up, and the last Adam made it right. What was required of all humanity? Well, 2, 15 through 17, place the man in the Garden of Eden to tend it and watch over it. But don't do this. Do not sin. Do not go against my word. Do not go against my law. Do not go against my design. Here's everything you need. Do your job. Fulfill your identity. Fulfill what I gave you and the reason I put you here. Just don't do this thing. And what do we do? We did the things. God of salvation. Romans 5.12 says that when Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death, so death spread to everyone, for everyone sinned. When you read Genesis in January, do you think about the eternal repercussions of Adam and Eve? Sometimes they say things like, oh, if the woman hadn't made to eat the fruit, ha, 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 which is silly. But when you look at the New Testament, there are so many mentions of Adam and the fall and the sin and how these things correlate. If you go to 1 Corinthians 15, 
verse 21 through 22, Paul writes, So you see, just as death came into the world through a man, now the resurrection from the dead has begun through another man. Just as everyone dies because we all belong to Adam, everyone who belongs to Christ will be given a new life. So when we read the creation story and we go, okay, God created man, that's great. Oh, and then, okay, man messed up, that's cool. War, sacrifice, exile, King David, David and Goliath, a couple of cool stories, Psalms, Proverbs, Jesus. But that's not how it works. There's so much value in the Old Testament that we don't see because we don't understand how it's correlating with the New Testament. Paul did. James did. The writer of Hebrews did. 1 Corinthians 15, 45 through 49, the scriptures tell us the first man, Adam, became a living person, but the last Adam, that is Christ, is a life-giving spirit. What comes first is the natural body, then the spiritual body comes later. Adam, the first man, was made from the dust of the earth, while Christ, the second man, came from heaven. Earthly people are like earthly men. And heavenly people are like the heavenly man. Just as we are now like the earthly man, we will someday be like the heavenly man. That's a promise. That's a promise that if we can see ourselves in that Old Testament story, we can also recognize who we are in the New Testament version of that same story. If we can see ourselves as Adam, who's hard-headed, who fails, who commits a sin, who gets kicked out of the garden, then we can also see ourselves as a heavenly man because Jesus came to be like us. One person got it right, one person got it wrong. Who are you going to be like? Who are you going to follow? Whose example are you going to follow? Adam and Eve is a cautionary tale. It explains the history. It explains our nature. It explains what we did wrong and how we got into this situation. But when you read the story of Jesus and you see that Jesus was like Adam and that he became man, but the fact that he did not sin is what sets him apart and fulfills this original covenant that was given to us way back in the Garden of Eden. If you continue in the Old Testament and you get to Exodus and you read about the Ten Commandments and the law and, you know, all these rules and regulations and how everybody came up short. Nobody was ever good enough or perfect enough to be considered righteous. A few people, Elijah, you know, people were considered righteous. Noah was considered righteous. But for the most part, we all had got it wrong. Everybody got it wrong. And yet, up until the time of Christ, all we had were these sets of rules and regulations to try to find a way to be in, in God's good graces, to try to find a way to be considered righteous by God. We had to follow these rules, and those rules grew and grew and grew until there was 316 or something crazy like that to where we couldn't even walk a certain distance on the Sabbath without being in danger of breaking and violating these rules. And so we had these rules and these structures and these laws. And when Jesus came and said, no, you have it wrong, it's, it's relationship, it's faith, it's hope, there was a clash. There was a huge clash between the Pharisees and the Jews who thought that Jesus was, was wrong and crazy and were threatened by his, his view of things. And there was Jesus who's saying, look, this is what God really wanted. This is really what the design is. This is really how it's supposed to be. And so then we have the problem of Galatians chapter 3, verse 10 through 14. 
And it says that those who depend on the law to make them right with God are under his curse. For the scriptures say, cursed is everyone who does not observe and obey all the commands that are written in God's book of the law. Now we know that all fall short of the glory of God. So anybody who's relying on the law to make them right with God is cursed, we say. Verse 11, so it is clear that no one can be made right with God by trying to keep the law. For the scriptures say, it is through faith that a righteous person has life. Verse 12, this way of faith is very different than the way of law, which says it is through obeying the law that a person has life. So we're talking about the differences. Verse 13, but Christ has rescued us from the curse pronounced by the law. When he was hung on the cross, he took upon himself the curse for our wrongdoing. For it is written in the scriptures, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. Through Christ Jesus, God has blessed the Gentiles with the same blessing that he promised to Abraham so that we who are the believers might receive the promised Holy Spirit through faith. Did you know that in Deuteronomy it says that anybody who's hung on a tree is cursed? Did you know that? Well, that's why the Pharisees wanted to crucify him. Because he can't be the Savior. He can't be the Son of God. He can't be the Messiah if he's cursed. If we put him on the tree, that is the worst thing we can do, and he'll be cursed, and then he'll lose his power. He'll lose his influence. He'll lose this attraction that makes people want to follow him. Let's kill him and put him on this tree, and he'll be considered cursed because we know the law. That means he's cursed, but Jesus said, bring it on. If that doesn't, I don't know, for me, if that doesn't give you a hope, uh, uh, an appreciation, an admiration of who Jesus Christ was, first of all, to live a sinless life. Secondly, to deal with all this opposition to the point that they killed him in the worst way possible, to curse him, to remove any kind of power or authority that he might have had. They wanted to remove all doubt that this man could have been the Messiah. And three days later, he said, <laughs> I'm the Messiah. Still, what else you want to do? It's my own, you know, action movie Jesus, I guess, where we come back. <laughs> but for me, if you put yourself in the mindset of an Old Testament scholar, because remember, at the time of Jesus, there was no New Testament. All they had to go by were these old rules. And the rules said, if you didn't follow the rules in the exact way that they felt they understood them, then you were a sinner. And you deserved to be stoned, cast out. Now they were motivated by power and money and influence, don't get me wrong. The, the church leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, they were all motivated with ulterior motives. But Jesus was able to fulfill God's design as it was presented in the Old Testament. So if you ever meet someone who says, well, nobody's perfect, so why try? Or... You know, we got kicked out of the garden and it's all over. It's not over. When you read the Old Testament, you're going to see, and as we go through this series, you're going to see all of these different plot points, is what you call them as a writer, plot points or plot devices that point to something that's going to happen in the future. That say, hey, this was the expectation. You couldn't meet it, but I have a plan for somebody who can. This is the, the expectation, this is the goal. You're not gonna meet it, but there is somebody who will. You're gonna bruise his heel and he's gonna crush your head. 
there's going to be animosity, enmity between you two. He was right. He always is. But here's the, the, the biggest thing I want to take away from it is Jesus Christ revealed God's plan and will for the redemption of fallen humanity and the restoration of the cursed cosmos. That's a quote from the book. Jesus Christ revealed God's plan and his will for the redemption of fallen humanity and the restoration of the cursed cosmos. What does that mean? A lot of times when we deal with sin, we'll, we'll feel the condemnation or we'll feel the conviction and we'll ask for forgiveness and that's where it stops. What I feel like we miss a lot of the time is restoration. How do you get back into right standing with the Lord? See, God cursed the very ground that they walked on. He made childbirth harder. He made physical work and, and provision harder. Everything was cursed. The very earth was cursed. So what we live in right now is a cursed and fallen earth. We're not living in God's design. We're not even close. Every good thing that's happening to you is a good thing in a cursed or wretched earth. And that sounds kind of depressing, but let me explain. God said, hey, you messed up, so now I have to take away this plan. But I do have a plan in the future. You ever get busted by your parents and they take away something, but they don't give you a finish line? You're grounded forever. Forever, right? Till the end of time. You lost your video games. Till when? Till I say so. Oh, right? How long? How long will we wait? When you read the Old Testament, they're in exile. God, how long? How long? The Assyrians have overthrown us. How long? The Babylonians have overthrown us. We're in exile for 70 years. God, how long? All these prophets are crying out, God, how long? When will you send somebody? When will you deliver us? Why, God? Why, God? Why? And God says, I already have a plan. And the worst part is that when the plan came into action, they didn't recognize him. Do you recognize the plan? When you read the Old Testament, you say, man, this old story of a snake and an apple or whatever the fruit is, it doesn't mean much to me. But if you look at it, you read between the lines and you dig into the stupid little dolls and you, you look for the plot points, there's, there's so much value there. I think that churches, most churches, spend so much time in the New Testament and not enough time in the Old Testament. There's value there. There's a reason why they crucified him. There's a reason why they put him on a tree. There's a reason why they kept asking the same questions over and over again, trying to trip him up, because they wanted to find fault in his interpretation of this law that they put so much faith and so much hope into. But Jesus was able to navigate all of these traps, all of these pitfalls, all of these questions, because he was revealing the plan for redemption. He was, he is the plan for redemption. From the very beginning, from Genesis chapter 3, we see God's plan to save you. If you've ever felt hopeless and you look for a sign, you look for something, God, is, 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 you know, it's a dark time, whatever it is. I spoke to a woman yesterday. Her father has prostate cancer. He's on his last, you know, legs. And she sat there and she cried. And she goes, why? You know, the question you get as pastors all the time. Why? 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 And you have to say, you know, God has a plan. This is, this is 
a fallen world, this is a cursed world, we have free will, yada, yada, yada. Why do bad things happen to good people? Why did this man just shoot 11 people in Pennsylvania? So when you feel desperate or weak or sad or frustrated or disgruntled, whatever it is, I can look and say even at the very beginning there was a plan to redeem us. Even in the very beginning there was a plan to save us. But it, not, it doesn't work if you don't know the plan. It doesn't give you peace if you don't recognize the plan. If you can't put the pieces of the puzzle together, you're not going to have that hope to pull on when the things get hard. So we're going to go through these Old Testament covenants and these Old Testament stories and these Old Testament ideas and say, do you see that? That's Jesus. We're talking about Jesus. That's a promise, a promise that is going to come to fruition in Jesus. So as we get ready to celebrate the birth of Jesus, which everybody likes to say, oh, this is amazing, peace on earth, goodwill toward men, Christmas, Christmas, Christmas. What exactly are you celebrating? We talk about the hope that we had and the rejoicing and Hosanna and, oh, my goodness, all these wonderful things. The, the, the wise men and the star, come on, man. We do this every year we talk about Christmas. And people act like it's such a big deal, and it is. It's a big deal for a lot of different reasons nowadays, between shopping and yada yada, okay? But it was a big deal because this is God's plan for redemption. What you may not or may not understand is something Gene said a couple months ago, a couple weeks ago, that we're living in our eternity right now. If you have said yes to Jesus, if you've made a decision to follow Jesus and proclaim him as your savior, your eternity has already started. You are living in part of his plan for redemption. You're already in it. And if you think it begins at Matthew chapter one, you're dead wrong because there's promises and promises and promises in the Old Testament that point to him. So this week, and man, you can come on up. I want you to recognize that you're living in God's plan and his story. Not just a New Testament story, but even an Old Testament story. Remember that God has had a plan from the beginning for your salvation. And he has a plan for your life as well. But we're talking about as we aim toward Christmas, the birth of Jesus was a fulfillment of a plan that was centuries old, thousands of years old. So if you're like me when I was a kid and you don't read the Old Testament or you feel like it's old fogey, scary stuff or, you know, you don't feel like it's relevant, it is so relevant. And uh, I don't have all the answers and I'm going to lean very heavily on this book because I think it's one of the best books I've ever read. But I want to journey through these covenants, through these promises, through these uh, Christophanies, if you know what I'm talking about, Jane, Shane. Um, because he was always there. Jesus isn't a new concept. The Messiah, the Savior, isn't a new idea. It's not some new chapter, new book that was not related to the old book. It is all combined. It is one big God story. And you are a part of it. In fact, you're living it right now. Because that plan for redemption that God had way back in Genesis chapter 3 was a plan to save you. Was a plan to love you was a plan to bring you into his restored